0: So let's get our Bibles and let's turn to the book of Numbers. Tonight we're starting chapter 31 and we are determined to finish the book tonight. Numbers chapter 31. And let's pray before we start. Lord, thank you so much for our time of worship tonight. Lord, when we reach out our hearts to you, Lord, you in turn fill us with your love and your grace, your mercy, and we thank you, Lord, for your peace because, Lord, you've blessed us with a peace that really passes understanding, a peace that stabilizes and steadies us, a peace that endures even in the midst of all kinds of difficult situations. We thank you for your peace tonight, Lord. And we ask that you encourage us tonight as we study through the Scriptures. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Babe Ruth's last hurrah occurred while playing for the Braves. That's right, the Braves. In a game against Pittsburgh on May the 25th, 1935, The babe came to bat in the first inning, and he hit a home run. In the third inning, he hit another home run. In the fifth inning, he singled, and in the seventh inning, he hit his third home run of the day. They say the ball sailed out of Forbes Field and landed in the street adjacent to the stadium. The aging slugger had displayed one final time his greatness. A few days later in Philadelphia, the babe injured his knee took himself out of the game in the first inning and never played another game. That day in Pittsburgh was his last hurrah. Well, in chapter 31, Moses has his last hurrah. And he too has a banner day. God allows Moses one final opportunity to lead the nation to a victory. A few days afterward, Moses will go on to his heavenly retirement Chapter 31 begins, and by the way, tonight we're starting something different. Just so you'll be able to stay up with us tonight, we'll, we're going to put the chapter number up before every chapter. And I don't know why, the, I, I have no idea why that's there. It's just 31. You got it? 31? Okay, so that'll kind of help you flow with this stuff. Don't try to read anything into the symbolism there, because there's nothing there. It's just chapter 31. You with me? Okay. You'll be surprised when we get to chapter 32 and then 33. I had a lot of fun with this this week. You'll you'll enjoy it. Okay. Chapter 31. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take vengeance for the children of Israel on the Midianites. You remember those Midianites? Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people saying, arm some of yourselves for the war and let them go against the Midianites to take vengeance for the Lord on Midian. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel, you shall send to the war. So there were recruited from the divisions of Israel, 1,000 from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. Then Moses sent them to war, 1,000 from each tribe He sent them to war with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest. Now, you remember Phinehas. Oh, Phinehas. He was the priest who was into body piercing. You remember that? Back in chapter 25, Phinehas performed a two-for-one body piercing. You remember that? A Hebrew man by the name of Zimri and his Midianite mistress. You remember her name, Cosby. They were flaunting their rebellion. Zimri had embraced Cosby's idolatry, and they were having illicit sex, perhaps even in the precincts of the temple. It was an X-rated episode of the Cosby show. And when Phineas became aware of what was happening, he grabbed a lance. He said, enough is enough. And he chased Zimri down. And he took the lance and he thrust it through both Zimri and Cosby. He wanted them to get the point that you can't run roughshod over the laws of God. And Phineas's decisive action stopped the plague and brought God's people to their knees. And so now God sends this zealous Phinehas to lead Israel to take vengeance on these same Midianites who had deceived the people, who had corrupted their morals. And notice what Phinehas takes with him into battle. Rather than bows and arrows and spears and battle axes, he goes out, we're told, with the holy articles and the signal trumpets in his hand. Phinehas took the Ark of the Covenant with him. The menorah, perhaps the other furniture that was... Set in the tabernacle, they all went with Phineas into battle. Remember, Zimri and the Midianites had mocked God's standards. And they had defiled the tabernacle of God with their immoral acts. And now, in essence, the tabernacle strikes back. Phineas takes the ark, the menorah, all the other elements of the tabernacle into battle. You could call it the revenge of the tabernacle. God's presence and God's holiness goes forth to execute judgment. Verse 7 tells us, And they warred against the Midianites, just as the Lord commanded Moses, and they killed all of the males. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed, Evi, Recham, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. Notice this, Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed with the sword. Balaam, old Harry Potter. You remember, he was the soothsayer who brought harm to Israel. Balak, king of Moab, had hired Balaam to curse Israel. But instead, God manipulated his mouth. And every time Balaam stood up to utter a curse, God put a blessing in his mouth on Israel. Balaam never did curse Israel, but he still cashed in on the purse. For you see, Balaam hatched a seductive scheme. Though he had been forbidden by God to curse Israel... If Balak, the king of the Midianites, sent his temple prostitutes into Israel's camp, and if these women lured the Israeli men to bed and seduced them to bow to their idols, then God would curse his own people himself. You see, what Balaam couldn't do or wouldn't do, God himself would do if the people were lured into sin. And that is exactly what happened. Balak sent the women into the camp to lead Israel astray. You know, there's only one problem with Balaam's payday. There's only one problem with sin's payday, and that's the next day. Because payday is eventually followed by judgment day. Balaam's wealth was short-lived. It never pays to sell out your integrity and betray God's truth, not at any price. Here, Balaam, too, is executed by the sword. You know, Balaam is really a sad story. In his first prophecy, back in Numbers 23, verse 10, Balaam had prophesied, Let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. But that's not how it ended for Balaam, is it? He was judged with the unrighteous. He died the death of the wicked and was executed by an Israeli sword. We're told, and the children of Israel took the women of Midianite, the Midianites, captive with their little ones, and took his spoil all their cattle, all their flocks, and all their goods. They also burned with fire all of the cities where they dwelt and all their forts. And they took all the spoil and all the booty of man and beast. Then they brought the captives, the booty, and the spoil to Moses, to Eleazar the priest. And to the congregation of the children of Israel to the camp in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. And Moses, Eleazar the priest, and all the leaders of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. But Moses was angry with the officers of the army, with the captains over thousands and captains over hundreds who had come from the battle. And Moses said to them, have you kept all the women alive? Now, now usually in ancient times, victorious armies would kill the men and they would allow the women to live. The men were a threat to retaliate. The women were no danger. But just the opposite was the case in this instance. These Midianite women were the direct reason for Israel's downfall. And now here come the men of Israel strutting back to the camp with their seductresses on their arm. Moses tells them, Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. How quickly Israel forgot God's judgment. The Midianite maidens proved to be a greater threat to Israel than the curses of Balaam or the army full of mighty warriors. Guys, sometimes our greatest threats are not the most apparent. Remember that. The most lethal enemy to our Christianity is not the ACLU, or the liberal media, or the leftist politician, or the atheistic school board member. No, the greatest threat to our Christianity is the link that pops up on the web page that can lead you astray, Or the remote controller, Or the wink from the girl in the office. Or the so-called friend who wants you to go out and have some fun. No, the obvious enemy is not always the most lethal. This is why we need to guard the back door. Well, God orders Israel, Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones. Now, this sounds harsh, doesn't it? But you need to understand that every Middle Eastern male was bound by two duties to avenge his father's death, and to preserve his cultural heritage. And this is why God sent Israel to battle. For Midianite culture was depraved and wicked and idolatrous. It was demonic as well, and God wanted it obliterated from the earth, not propagated by a future generation. Midianite males would have grown up to repeat their father's sins, and therefore God ordered their execution. Another thing you need to understand, because a lot of people look at Israel's role in the Old Testament and they say, how cruel, how barbaric. But you need to realize that Israel had a unique role in Old Testament times. Israel was God's instrument of judgment against the nations in and around the land of Canaan. You remember when God told Abraham that his descendants would remain in Egypt for 400 years. He used as his reason... For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, Israel's conquest of Canaan was ordained by God as a means of wiping out the perverse and the demonized cultures that had grown up in that land. Some of the most satanic cultures that the world has ever seen. The nations Israel will battle in Canaan that we'll read about in the book of Joshua. These nations were perverted. They were sold out to evil, into brutal practices, to satanic practices. And when God orders kids slaughtered, He's literally doing them a favor. He is rescuing them from a culture that would yoke them, yoke them to Satan and send them to hell. Think of Israel literally as the ground that opened up and swallowed Korah and his rebels. Think of Israel as the fire that came down and destroyed Sodom. Think of Israel as the 40 days of rain that flooded the earth. Israel was God's tool of vengeance, of judgment on cultures that he wanted punished and exterminated. This was a unique role for Israel in the Old Testament. Well, Moses also orders, and kill every woman... Who has known a man intimately. In other words, anyone who had likely participated in the seduction of Israel, they too were to kill. But keep alive for yourselves all the young girls who have not known a man intimately. They would become slaves and servants and hopefully adopt the worship of the one true God through the influence of the Israelites. And as for you, remain outside the camp seven days. Whoever has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. Purify every garment, everything made of leather, everything woven of goat's hair, and everything made of wood. In other words, don't bring anything that could be idolatrous, that could carry some kind of idolatrous connotation into the camp. Don't don't allow anything that might bring disease or infection also to come into the camp. Verse 21. Then Eleazar the priest said to the men of war who had gone to the battle, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord commanded Moses. Only the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can endure fire, you shall put through the fire, and it shall be clean." and it shall be purified with the water of purification. In other words, they should melt down any idol, anything that could be associated with an idol. But all that cannot endure fire, you shall put through water, and you shall wash your clothes on the seventh day and be clean, and afterward you may come into the camp. Everything had to be purified either by fire or by water. And you know the same is true for us. The fire is the Holy Spirit. The water is the Word of God. This is why we need the intense heat of the Holy Spirit to purge, to purify our desires. This is why we need the water of God's Word, the pure water, to wash our dirty minds and to renew our thoughts. Everything needs to be purified by either fire or by water. Verse 25, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Count up the plunder that was taken of man and beast, you and Eleazar the priest and the chief fathers of the congregation and divide the plunder into two parts between those who took part in the war who went out to battle and all the congregation. And this starts a very interesting principle that resurfaces throughout the Bible. Recall that only a thousand men from each of the twelve tribes went out to fight against the Midianites, a total of 12,000. That means that the remaining 590,000 men were not involved in the combat. And yet Moses decides that everyone should get a share of the spoils, both those that fought on the front lines and those who stayed behind to protect the camp. This is the same principle, by the way, that David uses in 1 Samuel 30, verse 24, when his army goes out to rout the Philistines. David says, As his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. And you know, I think this principle applies to us today. You see, it's not just the Christian missionary or the pastor that God rewards. No, God knows that for a Christian worker to be successful, it takes people back home who are willing to stay with the supplies and send their support to the front lines. So both the man who goes and the man who stays, both deserves the spoil and deserves the reward. The same portion goes to both. Now, everyone gets a portion, but everyone also has to pay a tax. Verse 28, And levy a tribute for the Lord, On the men of war who went out to battle, one of every 500 of the persons, the cattle, the donkeys, and the sheep, take it from their half and give it to Eliezer the priest as a heave offering to the Lord. And what do you do with a heave offering? You heave it up to the Lord. And from the children of Israel's half you shall take one of every 50 drawn from the persons, the cattle, the donkeys, and the sheep, from all the livestock, and give them to the Levites who keep charge of the tabernacle of the Lord." So Moses and Eleazar the priests did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now the next few verses itemizes the spoils. And they list the taxes that were levied. Verse 48. Then the officers, who were over thousands of the army, the captains of thousands and captains of hundreds, came near to Moses, and they said to Moses, Your servants have taken account of the men of war who are under our command, and not a man of us is missing. Notice they had fought with the Midianites, and not one casualty. God had blessed them and given them victory. And because of this, they wanted to say thanks Therefore we have brought an offering for the Lord what every man found of ornaments of gold, armlets and bracelets and signet rings and earrings and necklaces to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. In the last few verses of the chapter, count up their offering. Chapter 32. Look, look up here. Chapter. You get it? Chapter. You see it? 32? Chapter 32. Okay. You gotta stay with it tonight now. <laughs> now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw the land of Jazeer, this is now east of the Jordan River, and the land of Gilead. Boy, these were grassy, lush pasture lands. They weren't really considered part of the promised land. They were east of the Jordan River, but boy, did they look appealing to the tribes of Reuben and Gad. But they saw that indeed the region was a place for livestock. The children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Adaroth, Debon, Jazir, Nimrah, Heshbon, Ilialah, Shimbah, Nebo, and Beon, the country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel. This is a land of livestock. I mean, this is perfect for our flocks. And your servants, we got a lot of livestock. Now, Numbers chapter 21 recalls that on their march to Canaan, Moses had fought battles with King Og and King Sihon, kings of the Amorites. And in defeating these kings, what happened is that Israelites took control of the land east of the Jordan River. Now Reuben and Gad want to settle in this land rather than cross over into the promised land. Therefore they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us over the Jordan. Verse 6. And Moses said to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here on your big fat he didn't really say that, but that's what he meant. Their stated reason for wanting to settle on the east bank is the pasture land that will feed their fox, their herds. But, but Moses jumps to a conclusion here. He thinks that in addition to that, they're being lazy, and they're being faithless, and they're too afraid to fight. You see, the giants live primarily on the west bank, not the East Bank. Now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? Thus your fathers did when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshkol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger was aroused on that day. And he swore an oath, saying, Surely none of the men who came up from Egypt from twenty years old and above shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite and Joshua the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. Moses is thinking that history is about to repeat itself. The problem with the first generation is that they got to the edge of the land. They succumbed to fear. And they refused to have faith. They refused to move in and fight. Now the children of Israel are back to that same edge. And now two tribes want to stay put. And Moses is afraid it's all going to happen again. You know, sometimes history does repeat itself in our lives. Sometimes we do make the same mistake. Rather than going all the way with God, often we get right on the brink of blessing. And since the brink of blessing is better than the sink and stink of sin, we figure, oh, that's as far as we need to go. And we stop short. We settle for second best. This is why we need to press on. This is why we need to have faith. We need to enter into all the goodness that God has for us. We need to wholly follow the Lord not half-heartedly. Well, Moses reminds Gad and Reuben of the price the first generation paid for their unbelief. He says, So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and He made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And look, you have risen in your father's place a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel For if you turn away from following him, he will once again leave them in the wilderness and you will destroy all these people. Moses is afraid they're going to rub off on the other 10 tribes. And nobody's going to want to enter the land. And here Moses threatens Israel with another 40 years in the wilderness if they cave into their fears and if they refuse to fully follow the Lord into the land that he had given them. Now let me say, Moses' concern is certainly legitimate, and it definitely applies to the church. You know, I run into too many Christians who have the attitude of Gad and Reuben. They have a me-first attitude. Oh, you know, look at this. There's blessing right here. Oh, as long as I'm getting blessed, as long as my family's needs are met, we just want to settle right here. They have no sense of responsibility for the other brothers and sisters in Christ. What about their needs? What about their land? What about their conquest? Why fight somebody else's battles when the outcome won't really benefit me? Sadly, the church is full of East Bank Christians. Why should I help in the nursery? My kids are all grown now. I've done my duty. Who cares about a Christian school? We don't even have kids. Why should I pray for the marriages of the church? I'm a single guy. Why should I care, carry on a relationship with a single friend? I've now gotten married. You know, we're, we're off with our, our married friends. You know, sometimes we say we're serving God but we're really limiting our service to only what will benefit us directly or what will help our families. I call that an East Bank mentality. Thankfully, Moses had jumped to a conclusion. This was not really Gad and Reuben's underlying attitude. And they come back to Moses in verse 16. Then they came near to him and said, We will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones, but we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the children of Israel until we have brought them to their place, and our little ones will dwell in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every one of the children of Israel has received his inheritance. I like that mentality. Yeah, they'll settle on the east bank. They'll leave their families and their flocks there. But they promise that they will fight with and for the other ten tribes until all of Canaan has been taken and until all Israel occupies its inheritance. He says, For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance has fallen to us on the eastern side of the Jordan. Well, then Moses said to them, If you do this thing... If you arm yourselves before the Lord for the war and all your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you may return and be blameless before the Lord and before Israel and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you do not do so, then take note you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. Reminds me of the mom who went to visit her single son. And she was surprised to find that John's new roommate was a girl named Julie. Of course, John assured his mom that nothing was going on between he and Julie. They were just friends. This was a strictly friendship-only relationship. Nothing immoral was going on between them. Well, several weeks after her visit, Julie mentioned to John one day, John, ever since your mom visited, I've been missing the silver gravy ladle that we used to serve dinner. Do you think your mom took it? Well, John said, well, of course not. She's my mom. She's not going to steal the silver gravy ladle. Well, Julie convinced him that she should, he should write her and ask. And so John wrote this letter. Dear Mom, I'm not saying you did take the gravy ladle from my house. And I'm not saying you did not take the gravy ladle. But the fact remains that one has been missing ever since you were here for dinner. Well, several days later, John received a response from his mom. It read, Dear Son, I'm not saying you do sleep with Julie. And I'm not saying you do not sleep with Julie. But the fact remains, if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the gravy ladle by now. (laughs) Smart mom. As Moses said, be sure your sin will find you out, and it certainly will, won't it? Understand, though, the concept of Moses' comment here. Understand its context. Not every sin finds you out. Know that. There are some sins that people take with them to the grave. They keep it a secret till they die. But what Moses is saying here is that this East Bank mentality, this me first sin, this always looking out for number one kind of idea, only serving God if it benefits me, this is a sin that will always find you out. For eventually that faith will be tested and your true colors will show. Yes, you can't hide this. This is the sin that will find you out. Well, Moses continues. Build cities for your little ones and folds for your sheep and do what has proceeded out of your mouth. And the children of Gad and the children of Reuben spoke to Moses saying, Your servants will do as my Lord commands. Our little ones, our wives, our flocks, and all our livestock will be there in the cities of Gilead and your servants will cross over and every man armed for war before the Lord to battle, just as my Lord said, Reuben and Gad are ready to fight. So Moses gave command concerning them to Eleazar the priest, to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the chief fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel. Moses is going to be gone. A long time by the time the conquest of Canaan is complete. And so this is why he briefs Eleazar and Joshua on the terms of this deal, so that when it's all been done, they will carry out what has been promised to Gad and Reuben. And so Moses said to them, If the children of Gad and the children of Reuben cross over the Jordan with you, every man armed for battle before the Lord And the land is subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead as a possession. But if they do not cross over armed with you, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. Then the children of Gad and the children of Reuben answered, saying... As the Lord has said to your servants, so we will do. We will cross over armed before the Lord into the land of Canaan, but the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us on this side of the Jordan. So Moses gave to the children of Gad, to the children of Reuben, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. Notice notice the half-tribe of Manasseh was also a partner on the east bank. And so these two and a half tribes will possess the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, not Oz, but Og, king of Bashan, the land with its cities within the borders, the cities of the surrounding country. But in the end, was this really a good idea? To stop short of the promised land, to settle on the east bank of the Jordan River? History confirms that it was not. For as we'll see, every time a northern invader launched an assault on Israel, the tribes that were on the east of the Jordan River would catch the full brunt of their wrath and their fury. You see, these eastern tribes had no protection. They would have been better off settling on the west bank where God had promised them all along. Well, verses 34 and 42 list the cities of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh. And note the cities of Reuben here, sandwiched between Gad and Manasseh. You could call it a Reuben sandwich. Does it make you hungry? Yeah, okay. I thought you'd laugh a little harder than that. How many of you have moved lately? It's tough, isn't it? Moving is a big deal. If you had a dad in the military or in the mafia, you probably moved constantly growing up. And yet, no matter how many times your family moved, I am sure that nobody here compares to the family of Israel. For chapter 33 tells us that the children of Israel moved 42 times in 40 years in the wilderness. Imagine moving 42 times in 40 years. Anybody done that? No. And we think we're a mobile society. And so chapter 33. All right, great. Chapter 33. These are the journeys of the children of Israel who went out of the land of Egypt by their armies under the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now Moses wrote down the starting points of their journeys at the command of the Lord. And these are their journeys according to their starting points. And he starts in Egypt. They departed from Ramesses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with boldness in the sight of all the Egyptians. For the Egyptians were bearing all their firstborn whom the Lord had killed among them. Also on their gods, the Lord had executed judgments. Notice that. On the gods of Egypt, the Lord had executed judgment. Remember when we studied that? Each of the ten plagues was designed to show God's superiority over one of the false gods of Egypt. Do you remember? The Egyptians worshipped the Nile River, and so what did God do? He turned the Nile to blood, and write down the list. Then the children of Israel moved from Ramses and camped at Succoth. They departed from Succoth and camped at Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. They moved from Etham and turned back to Piharath, which is east of Baal-Zephon, and they camped near Migdal. They departed from before Heharath and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. And you can get your map out in your Bible. or Do we have a map for up here? Did we put that? Yeah. And you can read through these names, and you can try to chart their course as they journeyed through the, through the wilderness I'm just going to kind of read off the names to you so you can kind of follow along. Mara, then they camped in Elam, then by the Red Sea, and then in the wilderness of Sin, and then Dafka, and then Alush, and then Rephidim, and then Sinai, and a lot of these names aren't up here. And then you've got a long list of names of cities, of not cities, but of areas between Mount Sinai and Kadesh. And then we get down to verse 38. Then Aaron the priest went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. Aaron was 123 years old. Lived a pretty good life, didn't he? When he died on Mount Hor, now the king of Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south in the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the children of Israel. So they departed from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmone, Punon, Oboth, ea at the border of Moab, Eim, Gad, Almon, Dibalathium. Sounds like some, something you take for a sore throat or something. Dibalathium. They camped in the mountains of Abiram before Nebo. And finally, they camped by the Jordan River across from Jericho. Verse 50. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all their high places. And we're going to learn a lot about these high places. They were pagan altars that were used to worship idols, used to worship the false gods of the Canaanites. They were called high places because they were usually situated on an elevated piece of ground. We're going to talk a lot about these high places and how they got Israel in trouble over the coming months. Now you shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it. For I have given you the land to possess. And you shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among your families. To the larger you shall give a larger inheritance. And to the smaller you shall give a smaller inheritance. There, there, everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But Moses issues a warning in verse 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides. And they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. And boy, is this a warning to you and me as well. Ignore the sin that God wants to delete from your life and it will end up an irritant, a thorn, a hassle to you. That bad habit you keep holding on to. That place you frequent that gets you in trouble that non-Christian influence you still allow in your life, if you tolerate it, it will end up becoming a constant harassment. I know believers who get so pestered and so defeated in their spiritual life, they end up giving up on God, but there is no one to blame but themselves, for they choose to live with the enemy rather than drive him out. Guys, don't you make the same mistake. Drive out the enemy that's hindering you in your walk with God. Well, the chapter closes on an ominous note. God says to Israel that if you compromise, if you don't drive out the pagans in the land, moreover it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Boy, God's intention was to use Israel to judge the Canaanites. But if Israel compromises, she's the one that will be judged. Well, in chapter 34... We got a chapter 34? Oh, yeah, Shaq. Chapter 34, Moses becomes a surveyor. And he outlines for Israel the land that God expects them to move into and to occupy. And he provides for them exact boundaries. Verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land of Canaan, this is the land that, you shall, that shall fall to you as an inheritance, the land of Canaan to its boundaries. And as you notice, go down the next few verses, verses 2 through 5, mark off the southern border of the land. The western border was simple. Verse 6, you shall have the great sea or the Mediterranean for a border. This shall be your western border. Verses 7 through 9 lays the property pins on the northern border. And then verses 10 through 12 survey the eastern border. And from the Golan Heights, the the border came down to the Sea of Chinnereth. This is very interesting. The Sea of Chinnereth. It has another name. Do you know what it is? you know what its New Testament name was? Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee. Chinnereth was its Old Testament name. The word Chinnereth means harp. And when you go to Israel, we get up on top of the mountains right next to the Sea of Galilee, and you can look out over the whole sea, and it's in the shape of a harp. It's harp-shaped. That's why it was called the Sea of Chinnereth. The eastern border follows the Jordan River down to the Salt Sea or to the Dead Sea. In verses 16 to 29, the Lord gives Moses a list of men who are to divide the land among the 12 tribes. Eleazar, the high priest, and Joshua are to oversee the allocation, and each tribe is represented by one of the tribe's leaders. Now, if you've been paying attention, you'll realize that there is one tribe that's not mentioned in chapter 34. They seem left out. And that's the priestly tribe, the tribe of Levi. For God doesn't promise them a parcel of land. They get no property. Rather, God appoints cities for them. Now understand that Levi was not a farming or a sheep herding or a cattle herding tribe. The Levites worked in the service of the Lord. They worked in the tabernacle worship. And they were supported by the tithes of the people. God didn't give the Levites property because they didn't need land. Their inheritance was the Lord. Numbers 18 verse 20 had explained that. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them, for I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel." The Levites inherited the Lord, not a piece of land. God was their security. God wanted them dwelling in Him, not necessarily a lot of land. And yet the Levites needed some place to live. I mean, there was a laver in the tabernacle, but there certainly weren't any showers. And after a while, they'd start stinking up the place if they had nowhere to go home to and Shower up and shave and so forth. And so God appointed for the Levites throughout all the land of Israel various cities. Chapter 35. Oh, yeah. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Command the children of Israel that they give the Levites cities to dwell in, from the inheritance of their possession. And you shall also give the Levites common land around the cities. They shall have the cities to dwell in, and their common land shall be for their cattle, for their herds, and for their animals. The common land of the cities which you shall give the Levites shall extend from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around. And you shall measure outside the city on the east side 2,000 cubits. On the south side, 2,000 cubits. On the west side, 2,000 cubits. And on the north side, 2,000 cubits. The city shall be in the middle. This shall belong to them as common land for the cities. Remember, a cubit was 18 inches. So 1,000 cubits equals about 1,500 feet. So they measured out 1,500 feet for their Common land, the land where they plant their little gardens. They, didn't, they, they weren't actually being fed from their gardens and from their herds, but they had a few. Gave their dogs a place to roam and, you know, go and so forth. And I mean, they didn't keep their dogs pinned up in their backyard right next to their neighbor's house where the dog would howl and all and wake up their neighbor, you know, constantly. and Sort of what Levites today have to put up with. That's why they move. Hope my neighbor gets his tape, <laughs> but anyway, they got, had this common land where their dogs could kind of run and all and so forth. And then they had an additional cubits on top of that, which which meant that they had about three thousand feet out on all sides. You know of their, you know from their city. That means that the common land around the city was a little over two hundred acres. The best of my calculation it's kind of hard to understand this to be quite honest with you and so last night I got the Zondervan pictorial bible encyclopedia out and I and I looked it up to try to you know get their take on on how to measure out the common lands and you know what the the thing said this is kind of hard to understand Now among the cities which you will give to the Levites, you shall appoint six cities of refuge, to which a manslayer may flee, and to these you shall add forty-two cities. So all the cities you will give to the Levites shall be forty-eight. These you shall give with their common land. There were forty-eight Levitical cities, and they're listed for you in Joshua chapter twenty-one. Six of these Levitical cities were specially designated as cities of refuge. Verse 14 tells us that three of the cities of refuge were on the east of the Jordan River and three were on the west of the Jordan River, meaning that you were never more than a half day's journey to a city of refuge. Now the city of refuge was a safe place for a person to turn into and to run from an avenger. If you've ever watched an episode of Law and Order, Perry Mason, Matlock, whatever, you know the difference between first-degree murder and manslaughter. Murder in the first degree is intentional. It's premeditated. Manslaughter is unintentional. It's accidental. And in ancient times, if you were guilty of manslaughter, the family of the victim could still, they still had the right to avenge their relative's blood. And so they could come after you. They could kill you. And they would chase you down. They were serious about this. You were never safe. You were always looking over your shoulder. But God provided the manslayer a safe place to flee. He could duck into a city of refuge. And while he was there, he was safe. He was protected. He was shielded from the avenging party until he could be tried and declared innocent. And these six cities of refuge were scattered across the land of Canaan, and they were accessible from every corner of the promised land. Now, verses 16 to 21 describe cases of murder in the first degree where the murderer deserved to die. Verses 22 through 24 give examples of the manslaughter where a person qualified to run into a city of refuge. And in verse 25, it outlines the duties of the Levites once they get there. So the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he had fled, and he shall remain there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. Upon the death of the high priest... The manslayer's pardon became permanent, and he could return to his home, no longer vulnerable to any vengeance. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate city of refuge. And this all speaks of Jesus. This is a type of our salvation. Run to Jesus, and you are safe. Stay in Jesus, and you are safe. And like the manslayer of old, your pardon has also become permanent because of the death of the high priest. For Jesus is our high priest. And when he died on the cross, it sealed the deal on our amnesty. Now we are fully free and forever free. For Jesus' blood, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, saves us to the uttermost. That means you're as saved as you can get when you're in Christ Jesus. I like that. He says this from the guttermost to the uttermost. Did you know that? But if the manslayer at any time goes outside the limits of the city of refuge where he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the limits of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood because he he should have remained in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. And again, here's a lesson for us. Salvation requires that we stay in the city of refuge. That we abide in Christ. That we continue in our faith. That we persevere. That we endure. Guys, perseverance and endurance are a part of our faith. They're a part of saving faith. Verse 29 tells us, And these things shall be a statute of judgment to you throughout your generations and all your dwellings. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses, but one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. It took two or three witnesses. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. In other words, freedom should never be sold. All too often in courts today, the verdict rests on who can afford the best lawyer. And you shall take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the priest. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore, do not defile the land which you inhabit, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. Now, back in chapter 27, we read about four girls. They were the daughters of Zelophehad. And where God sided in favor of them, you remember in chapter 27, God ruled in favor of equal rights for these four women. You see, in ancient times, it was customary to pass down land to sons and not daughters. But Zelophehad's four daughters were his only offspring. And these women thought that it would be appropriate that they inherit their father's land. Moses asked the Lord about this. And you remember, God sided with the girls. Well, now in chapter 36, the case comes back up on appeal. Now the chief fathers of the families of the children of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of the sons of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the leaders, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, and they said, The Lord commanded my Lord Moses to give the land as an inheritance by law to the children of Israel, and my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of our brothers Alaphahad to his daughters. Now if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the children of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers, and it will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So it will be taken from the lot of our inheritance. And when the jubilee of the children of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry." So their inheritance shall be taken away from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. If you give these women equal rights, they're going to carry their property into their marriages. And it could ultimately create an unequal distribution of the land. It'll spoil God's allocation of the land to the various tribes. Well, they had a point. Then Moses commanded the children of Israel, according to the word of the Lord, saying, What the tribe of the sons of Joseph speaks is right. And Moses has a solution. If a woman is the heir to a piece of property, she should only marry within her same tribe. That way no tribe would lose any land to another. The book of Numbers closes... With verse 13. These are the commandments and the judgments which the Lord commanded the children of Israel by the hand of Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. For eight weeks now, we've been crunching numbers. And I hope you've gotten as much out of it as I have. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you, Lord, that we too have a promised land. You have promised us blessing untold, riches in Christ Jesus, love and joy and peace and power, supernatural gifts, a home in heaven, friends on earth. You've promised us it all. But, Lord, help us to follow you fully. Help us, Lord, not to get to the edge and then back down, but help us, Lord, to face our fears, to have faith and trust you and step out and allow you to win great victories through our faith. Strengthen our faith tonight, Lord. We love you and help us to walk in victory this week. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Hey, why don't we go out and have a Reuben sandwich?